0: You're listening to The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome Podcast. Welcome to Episode 72 of The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. How you doing? I've got an amazing conversation that I'm going to drop on you momentarily. It's a conversation unlike any you have heard in the 71 episodes prior to this one. So you're definitely going to want to lock this one in. Trust me. Now, first things first. You know I'm going to start the program with a couple of thoughts off the top of my head. So I'm not a huge binge guy when it comes to watching shows. Now that's not to say that I'm not a show person, but generally, my wife Janet and I like to watch one show at a time. Now we don't have time to blast or binge through a ton of programs. We like to find the one show, and if we take care of our daily business, and it's not too late, maybe we reward ourselves with a single episode a few nights a week if we earned it and if it's not going to keep us up too late. So, the latest show we watched was the smash hit The Bear. I absolutely love this show for a number of reasons. And a number of characters in The Bear struggle with many of the same things that we all struggle with and talk about on virtually every single episode of this pod. So, while I'm not huge on quoting TV shows, I do want to pull a couple from an episode that I just saw from Season 2 of this show. One of the main characters in the show, Richie, is for the most part a frustrated, often belligerent figure who lashes out because he doesn't know his purpose. He doesn't have a calling. He's angry because everything around him is changing and he just doesn't know where he fits in in a world that is spinning so fast. And he's distraught that he's 45 and feels utterly useless and has virtually nothing to show for his life until his cousin, the show's protagonist, sends him away to work and study under somebody else. A legendary business owner who tells him, quote, it's never too late to start over. End of quote. Something that she herself did in her late 30s before building the monster business that she currently presides over. She hammers that point home. It is never too late to start over. Again, it is never too late to start over. Not for Richie in his mid 40s or for anybody else older than that for that matter. Then, later in the same episode, a common theme that shows up throughout the series, because they're all under immense pressure to meet a certain deadline, is presented yet again. Namely, quote, every second counts. Every second counts. Not every day, not every hour, not even every minute, but every second. Every second counts. Richie, who had no direction, was frustrated, lashing out, and making it worse, not better, for everybody around him, somehow, some way, was able to absorb and apply those two lessons. It's never too late to start over, and every second counts. He does start over upon his return to the original team, and he treats every second as if it were a gift. And because of it, he begins to find his purpose, and his meaning, and he reclaims his life. I mean, sure, it's only a TV show. I get that. A damn good one. But yes, it's only a show. However, those two things truly resonated with me. It's never too late to start over and every second counts because that's exactly what I'm doing and how I'm approaching my business, my brand, my entire life. Because not only did I need to hammer a shot of adrenaline into myself, I actually wanted to start with a clean canvas, a clean slate. Now I am open to anything and everything, and I want to rebuild everything, the way I think, the way I act, the way I communicate, the products and the content that I create. And I believe that's entirely possible if, if you fully accept and commit to this notion that it's never too late to start over and that every second counts. Me, I'm in my late 50s. I'm starting over, damn it, exploring new projects, new ideas, and looking to stretch myself in ways that I have not in years. However, I know it's all lip service and it's bullshit if I don't make every second count. So don't tell me, or more importantly, don't tell yourself that it's too late to chase your dreams. It's never too late. It's never too late if you start right here, right now. And if you understand that you have to make every second count. Don't start tomorrow. Start right here, right now. Hit that giant freaking reset button, start the hell over, and commit with every fiber in your being and make every second. Damn second count. Not only when it's convenient, but every single day, every single second, all in, all out, every day, no days off. Because, ask me, that is what it takes to live the life you truly want to live. That's what it takes to change your life if you're going to. Ask me, it's the only way. Now, for today, nobody embodies this more than my next guest. And I want to reiterate, you have not heard a guest like this on this podcast to date. Brian Banks was a standout football player in one of the greatest high school football powerhouses, Long Beach Poly, in the early 2000s. He was one of the best players on one of the best teams in the country and seemingly headed to USC and then ultimately moving on to the NFL. That was his plan, and it looked like it was going to come to fruition. However, his entire life changed in a single instant as he was accused of a violent crime that he did not commit. He ultimately lost 10 years of his life, including nearly six in jail, after being wrongly accused of a crime that he did not commit. We're all always dealing with some adversity, some challenge, something that's creating stress and anxiety in our lives. But before you give in, tap out, or succumb to whatever it is Listen to what Brian Banks had to endure, what he had to overcome, and ultimately, what he did to regain control of his life and his mind. This is a powerful, moving, and in many ways, unbelievable story, but it really did happen. And it's something I think we all need to hear. It's episode 72 with resilience coach, author, keynote speaker, and entrepreneur Brian Banks, and it's coming at you right now. So Brian, my guy, it's been a minute, but it is just great. I mean, great to get caught up and spend some time with you. How you doing, my guy?
1: I'm good, man. It's 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 you know it's good to be back on the phone with you. Last time we talked has been, I want to say, uh, going on now maybe 11 years uh, plus. Um, but the last time we talked, I was uh, newly exonerated, and um, it was finally uh, time for me to 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 see the world man I was going through so much at that time and regaining so much back into my life so it was it was uh it was interesting man it was good to have somebody like you in my corner that heard my story that you know wanted to uh share with the world and it really helped me uh you know moving forward so i thank you
0: for that no i i so appreciate you saying that brian and i'm so glad to be able to talk to you again i think that even though the world has changed some things stay the same and i think your message right now is every bit as powerful at this time as it was then for those brian who do not know the story and your journey they are amazing Can you take us back, can we go back to 2002 when you were a junior at Long Beach Poly? It's a national football powerhouse for those who do not know. You were a star. You were only 16. You were being heavily recruited. You had NFL aspirations, which were realistic. So what was your life like at that point?
1: Yeah. Yep. This was uh, exciting times for me Uh, when I was 16. And, you know, my whole life was just centered and built around sports. You know, I, I started off, really young, uh, playing basketball and everybody thought I was going to be some seven foot guy and, you know, you know, towering over people and going, playing the NBA. And, um, I got to my 11th grade year. I stopped growing. I was about six foot three and I started shaping out and building out more, uh, more muscle mass and height. And, um, you know, just to kind of backstory, just, I remember one of my freshman football coaches, uh, coach Luke rest in peace um I you know unbeknownst to me his grandmother or his mother lived right next door to me in a house that we had just moved into into the neighborhood I was coming out of the house and I was headed to Long Beach Poly High School for sports orientation I was just leaving the eighth grade going into my sophomore, my freshman year in high school and I'm heading to orientation for basketball and as I'm heading out the house he was heading out of his mom's house he saw me and he said, oh, shit, boy, how old are you? And I told him how old I was and what grade I was going to. And he said, man, you need to come play some football. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking about football. I had played pop Warner football for uh, two years at my you know nine-year-old and 10-year-old and started really getting into basketball because everybody said that basketball was going to be my thing. And um, he convinced me to come out and try out for the team. I made the team, played tight end my freshman year in defensive end. And really caught the attention of of the 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 senior coaches uh for our varsity football team and uh at that time long beach poly you know and still is today an absolute unit uh for high school football a powerhouse and when i was you know and i had the privilege of going to long beach poly high school uh we had players like mercedes lewis and darnell bing and herschel dennis uh, Winston Justice and Emmanuel Emmanuel Wright uh, I mean we had you know they were they were called the fab five at that time you know we had an, an absolute powerhouse uh you know uh, of, a, of a football team and so to be acknowledged by the varsity football coaches uh, and, and to be taken into the varsity team at your sophomore year uh, really stood out and meant a lot Uh, for Long Beach Poly High School and not only high school but the community if they heard that a freshman had advanced into varsity football it was huge and I was one of those guys it was me and a few other players that had that opportunity so here I am my sophomore year I'm I'm now uh, been moved over to uh, fast group defensive end I would come in on third and third and long they needed to make a quick tackle and I was playing linebacker middle linebacker I started going to all of these training camps outside of my uh, high school. I would go to the Nike camps and, you know, all the unofficial visits and so forth. And I started getting really noticed and acknowledged as a linebacker. I started getting recruited and I started, you know, placing on the ranking boards and everything started to kind of begin to play out. I got my first recruiting letter from USC and Pete Carroll, and they started visiting the high school to check on certain players and they would, Check on me and see how I was doing. And, you know, so all of these things started to, to, to take place my sophomore year. At the end of my junior year, I was a middle linebacker. I was right behind uh, our starting linebacker. And I had had an injury. And, you know, once I got past the injury, I started really beginning to shine. And there was so much future ahead of me going into our senior year um, as I was going to be leading our our high school football team uh, defensive program um that summer going into my senior year um i had just finished the 11th grade i was in summer school um and we were uh standing by waiting for football practice at the end of school uh and while we were standing there waiting for practice we noticed a overwhelming presence of police officers on our campus I even got up from the area that we were and went over to one of the police officers and even asked, hey, what, what's going on? And he just ignored me and kept going. Moments later, one of the, a, a player, uh, one of my teammates, his, his dad came onto the campus and he walked up to us as a group and he said, hey, Brian, um, um, I heard the police say uh, that they were looking for you. And I was completely baffled. I couldn't even imagine why, you know, why the police would be looking for me. You know, I hadn't done anything that would warrant a police officer to be at my high school campus looking for me. So I completely dismissed it. I, you know, I figured he overheard the wrong thing. I wouldn't check on my younger brother to make sure he was okay. My brother was, you know, good. He didn't do anything wrong. So I let it go. And uh, within moments, I saw a girl um, who I had been with earlier that day on our campus and in a very known makeout area uh, where she and I had made out. We had kissed and touched each other. And that was the extent of it. Um, but fast forward, here she is exiting our our high school campus with a slew of police officers and her mother and, and her sister. And in my mind, I still didn't put two and two together that I was going to be arrested or accused of the type of crime that I was accused of. It never crossed my mind at this point. What I was thinking was, you know, this girl was very much known um, in some ways as a troublemaker, um, uh, you know, a a problem starter, uh, not only for students on campus, but with the teachers and the the faculty. Um, I figured she had done something on campus that, you know, got her into trouble but the idea that the, the fact that, you know, the player's dad had also threw me into it really made me uncomfortable. So I left campus, went across the street. And, you know, at this time, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, cell phones weren't really a big thing. And to, for kids at this in 2002, I, I remember going across the street to a friend of mine's house. And I called my mom um, and I told her, you know, one of the players, dad told me the police were looking for me. And she said, well, what did you do? And I said nothing. She said, well, if you didn't do anything, then you don't have anything to worry about. And I said, I don't know, mom, something just don't feel right. And she said, well, if you feel something, something's wrong, then just come home. So I skipped practice. I went home and talked to my mom a bit more. She assured me everything was fine. And I laid down to take a nap and I was awakened. I would say moments later, maybe an hour or so later. Um, by a very uh, overwhelming presence of police officers in my my bedroom one of the police officers had his knee pressed into the middle of my back pushing me into the bed Um, there were guns out there were orders being barked all over the place I was told to put my hands behind my back and you know I was yanked off the bed and handcuffed and you know at this time I was I was in it was summer I was in my boxers I had just took a shower because I was shaking I was on the bus and walking home and sweaty. And so I'm there, you know, put on, tell me what you want to wear and put on some clothes and what do you want to know? So I'm trying to find clothes to wear while I'm handcuffed. I'm pointing at stuff with my feet. And it's just this overwhelming commotion that's just going on right now. Something I had never in my life experienced. And I, I was being hauled out of my room and out of my room straight across the hallway was my mom's room. And you, when you come out and, You know, you turn right, you go down the stairs. But if you kept going straight, my mom's room was right there past some cabinets and, and, you know, bathroom and so forth. And my mom was in her doorway of her room, collapsed to her knees, just screaming in agony in a way that I'd never heard my mom scream before. And she was just in just it was just terror, just the whole experience itself and how going from you know, it was like night and day, you know, here I am hanging with the fellas waiting for practice. And the next thing, you know, I'm, you know, I'm being yanked out of bed by police and my mom's screaming crazy. And I had no clue at that time, Jim, that that would be the last day of my freedom, um, for the next five years and two months. Um, when I would parole in, in August 29th, 2007, um, at the age of twenty-two,
0: hmm. I mean, Brian, what you laid out is, and thank you for doing that. So you had never been in trouble. You had never seen a set of handcuffs. They pull you out. They put you in the back of a police car, and you're handcuffed. You had never been in trouble before. At that point, did you have any idea what you were being arrested for?
1: None. No. No clue whatsoever. You know, I not especially not that. You know it. it Growing up where I grew up, the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, you know, boys were boys, girls were girls. And, you know, everybody was growing up and trying to figure each other out. But you never heard of stuff like this. You never experienced or or or, or even heard of a friend or somebody being forced to, you know, do something that they didn't want to do. Um, and so to be accused of that, to be labeled that person, to to have to endure all that I had to go through. Um, with that being the reason, uh, it, you know, I'm, it still affects me today.
0: Of course. Of course. So Brian, when you were in the car and you said to the police, the guy riding shotgun, what am I arrested for? Why am I here? What did he tell you?
1: Yeah, I, this was, you know, I, I'm being taken away from, from my home and, The police are driving me now to a a, uh, hospital where they could perform a DNA test kit on me. And as I'm being hauled away, I'm asking one of the officers why I was being detained and what was going on. And that was when I was first told uh, that it was because I was being accused of rape. Um, And I just remember just sitting back in in the seat and just repeatedly saying, I didn't, you know, this is crazy. I didn't do that. And they're like, well, you got to go through this process of a DNA test kit and you got to talk to this detective and you can explain everything to the detective. We, you know, we can't, we can't help you right now. And that was the beginning of it. Um, that was the beginning of a lot of, of, of hardship of, of complete, complete turmoil. Um, for not only just me, but my family, my mom, my, my brother, and my my sister, you know, friends and family members, it's just was unheard of. It just, you know, and 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 to be the person uh, that created, uh, or that was not created, but to be the person that was accused of such a crime that created this new discussion within our, our community, was even harder for me because I had spent so much time and effort into becoming a football player, into becoming a student, into doing the best that I could to, you know, follow in the footsteps of my mother and be strong and be proud um, and to be thankful for life and opportunity. You know, these were the things that she would instill in us as as young kids. Uh of course, I'm still young and 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 venturing out in life and in a lot of ways doing things I shouldn't be doing. Uh but nothing ever to this extent. You know, so, nothing ever to this extent.
0: So, Brian, you end up in juvenile hall, you're denied bond, you finally get a lawyer. What was the lawyer like and did she make it better or did she make it worse?
1: Yeah, um that's <laughs> that was the beginning of turmoil. Um, you know, my mom and I and our family, we were so unfamiliar with the court system. We had no clue what to do or who to run to. Um, and we started speaking to family friends and and family, uh, a family, I was a friend of the family at the time, um, recommended a lawyer, uh, <laughs> Jim, based off of the fact that she went to school with another uh, very predominant lawyer. And based on, you know, based on that information, this lawyer should be good, too. And we were so naive at the time, um, and not only naive, but just in fear and and, and lack of resource um, that we chose this lawyer. Uh, and from day one, this lawyer just wanted me to plead out to a deal, just wanted me to take a deal um, and, uh, you know, did no investigation. Um, had my mom hire a PI, this private eye never interviewed anybody, never went to the supposed crime scene, never did any of did any of the back checks. This lawyer, um, my mom paid for. She sold her house, she sold her car, she sold you know everything that she had. Worked so hard for her to pay for this lawyer, and all this lawyer did was try to get us to plea out to to a, a deal and and not really fight the case and we would later find out that uh she was on her way to uh becoming a commissioner a judge in la uh and and probably didn't want to lose any more cases uh so it was probably in her best interest to you know to settle these cases uh in and, and and plea outs in hopes of uh having favor of the district attorney's office um and obtaining a Uh, referral to becoming a commissioner, Mm -hmm. which currently is in Los Angeles County.
0: It's insane. It's insane. I mean, for instance, Brian, what options did she present you with and what did she advise you to do?
1: Yeah, she, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty unfortunate. You know, I, I, you know, here I am now, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I've been incarcerated now almost one year fighting this case. Um, I was offered a number of deals uh, ranging from, you know, juvenile life, which was to stay in prison until I was 21, to 18 years, to 17, uh, to uh, 12 years to, you know, and I was turning all of these deals down. My mother, you know, was advising me through it all. You know if you're innocent if you didn't do it you know obviously we're not going to take any deals we're going to fight this case and that was that was always our our intention um on the day that i was supposed to select a jury and go to trial uh my lawyer uh, met me in an interview room at that courtroom pulled me into this interview room and you know to smile on her face as if she just accomplished something huge for you know me in this situation I'm very excited to hear here I am all ears and she proceeds to tell me that uh, she just put together a deal with the district attorney's office that if I was to plead no contest, which means that I am not contesting the charges that have been posed against me. I'm not saying that I'm innocent or guilty. I'm just saying that I'm not going to contest them and you can subject me to any guilty verdict (laughs) that you wish to essentially. So she tells me at the age of 17, if you go into the courtroom right now and plead no contest, I can uh, guarantee you that you will get felony probation after a 90 day observation at Chino State Prison. You'll go to Chino, you'll be interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor who will determine on a ladder system whether you are to receive felony probation, three years in prison or six years in prison. But Brian, I I guarantee you, and I promise you, you will get the favorable report. You will get uh, the, the 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 ninety day observation followed by probation, and you'll be home, and you can still play football and move on with your life. Uh, you know, but if you don't go into this, if you don't go into this this courtroom and plea out, and you choose to move forward and fight this case. You know, you're going to select a jury that more than likely is going to be an all white jury and they're going to see you as a guilty person because you're a big black teenager. You know, my lawyer was a, a black woman herself. Um, so this was very just unfortunate to hear after almost a year of being incarcerated and behind bars because they impose a bail of over one million dollars on me. Um, You know, I wasn't a flight risk. We didn't have money. I don't have any relationships or family in another country. I wanted to play football and stay at my my school. I wasn't going anywhere. But the bail was one million dollars plus. I think it was 1.125. So we couldn't post bail and a lawyer at the same time. So I had to stay in there. So, So here I am at 17 and I'm sitting there and she's leaving me with this ultimatum. Go in there, fight this case, more than likely be convicted and found guilty based on your appearance. Or you can take this deal where I'm guaranteeing you after 90 days in prison, adult prison, you will get probation and you'll get to go home. What do you want to do? Because I got to go in there right now and tell the DA if you accept this deal or not. You know, and I'm asking, can I talk to my mom? Let me talk to her because we would always talk about these these you know these things being presented to us and she said no you can't talk to mom you know you are you know you're in adult court now even though you're 17 you got to make adult decisions on your own you got to tell me now what do you want to do so here I am at 17 following the the advice of an adult which was my attorney without the counsel of my mother and I made this I took the deal you know I'm thinking I could be home in 90 days I'd already been locked up almost over a year The last thing I wanted to do was stay in there much longer. I was facing 41 years to life in prison, you know? So I took the deal. I walked into that courtroom and uh, I I shocked everybody there. My family, friends, people that were there in support, they thought I was coming out to select a jury. And I came out there and and told the judge, I plead no contest. And uh, that was it. I went on that 90 day observation. I got the favorable report like the the lawyer told me I would which was very very good to 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 hear and i you know th- there is isn't you know the whole experience of prison in chino itself is a probably a, an entirely different show
0: yeah Brian, uh, let me let me start to jump in. i was going to ask you about that because it's one thing like you you trust your lawyer your lawyer is saying if you try to fight this you cannot win and you're going away for a long long time however i cut a deal for you just go away for 90 days easier right. said than done for those who do not know What is Chino State Prison like, and what types of things did you see in those 90 days?
1: Yeah, man. (laughs) You know, it's crazy because I've been interviewed many times, um, and I've never gotten into really what prison life is like, you know? And that's just partly out of respect for people who are behind bars, who unfortunately have to live in those conditions um you know especially innocent people such as myself who are in there right now for crimes that they didn't commit it's an absolute horror film but it's not you know horror films last a couple days maybe a day you know most horror films you watch it is you know maybe a day go to sleep get up and keep going something happens within a couple days <laughs> imagine living that horror movie for five years 10 years 20 30 40 years of your life you know chino state prison is one of the most notorious prisons in the state of california known for its violence and the hardened criminals that are housed there or the hardened inmates that are housed there uh it's it's the first time i've i saw you know, guys that should be on football fields, 6'5", 350 pounds with, you know, giant swatsikas on their chest or gang tattoos on their faces or, you know, just things that, (laughs) you know, just hard, tough, tough guys that, you know, do this for a living, you know? And here you are, you're, you know, you're, I was, I was sent to Chino state prison the day after my 18th birthday. And, um, I was, you know, I remember going to sleep the night before in a juvenile hall and I was surrounded by kids and I woke up the next day and I was transferred to Chino. And here I am with those career criminals, those, the real ones that you've, you know, that you've always feared to to come in contact with and, you know, experiences You know, a little bit of everything, you know, you, you, you know, I walk into a shower uh, or walk into the bathroom where, you know, the sinks and showers were and there'd be a guy in the shower, you know, uh, passed out, bleeding out, been stabbed up. And you just got to turn around and walk out of that bathroom and go back to your area or wherever you want to go and act like you didn't see it. You know, no facial expression, you know, no talking about it. You just go on about your day until he's found by whoever needs to find him. You know, there was another time I stepped out into the yard, maybe within a few days of being within Chino, a couple guys got to fighting on the yard. And in Chino, there's, you know, there's an understanding that there will be no warning shots when, you know, when things kick off in there. And sure enough, they, you know, shot a guy right in the shoulder. Um, and then there was another story. I'll give you one more. I, I I wasn't there, but we got locked down and our entire, the entire prison was shut down for a few weeks um because a guy was um a guy had broke a broomstick in half from the prison bars and ran the other side of it up a guy's chest and and the guy died on airlift um to the the helicopter to the hospital you know so it's like it's war you know it's like it's like you're being in a a war zone where you're constantly just you know looking over your shoulders sleeping with one eye open uh, not trusting a word that anybody says but trying to develop some type of relationship with a few people that could help you stay a little safe um trying not to give too much information about yourself to protect yourself um and just playing chess and not checkers it's constantly being on top of your game uh because the moment you slip could be the last day of your life mm-hmm. um I mean- and that and i haven't even got into the the cleanliness of prison I won't but there's a whole nother side of it and that's just the the overall conditions of prison and how you have to live um uh, which would you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody who didn't deserve it
0: I mean I I appreciate and respect you sharing what you did I absolutely understand why you'd be hesitant to share anymore it just it sounds it sounds horrifying man it sounds terrifying it sounds like prison. So you're there for 90 days. You're only 18 years old. You're there to get these evaluations. Brian, you go through the two separate evaluations and they come back glowingly, right? They're extremely positive. At that point, did you think, okay, I got through the 90 days. I'm going home because I met with these two medical people or people evaluating me and they said really positive things. Did you think you were clear in going home?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I was told specifically that The deal was all based on the recommendation that I was to get from the psychologist and the counselor. That based on their recommendation, I was to get, you know, one of the three of the latter, Um, and that was what the judge was supposed to abide by. So when I was when I received my 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 results back that they were in my favor, the first thing I did was I remember writing a letter home to my mom. We couldn't use phones at the time, or I couldn't even have a visit at the time during this 90 day observation. It was complete isolation from the outside world besides writing letters. So I wrote this letter home to my mom immediately. Mom, we got that favorable report. I mean, I was in tears. We got it. I'm shaking. I'm going to be home within a few weeks. Mom. like, this is finally, you know, the prison side of this, this whole ordeal is going to be over. I'm going to be home. Um. And I remember finishing those 90 days kind of just floating, man. I was just, you know, it was floating as a, as best as I could. You know, I'm, I'm in prison. I'm still dealing with everything that I'm dealing with around me. Um, and, it, you know, emotionally as well. But knowing that there was this glimmer of light right, that was there for me, you know, hey, this, this is over in a few days. You'd be home and you can deal with it from here. Uh, it, it really got me through the last bit of that experience at Chino. Um, I had no clue that once I got back to court that things
0: would, you know, go the other way. I mean, to that point, Brian, so let's remember your lawyer told you, promised you, guaranteed you probation if you got favorable reports. And you did. You come out for sentencing. What did the judge do?
1: Yeah, um, I remember showing back up to court. I believe it was my dad's birthday. It was October the 8th, and three and um i walked into court i saw my family i you know i gave them a small smile there was already you know letters going back and forth and communication about what could happen that day of court um and so we were all looking up you know for, for this for this you know at one point finally trying to you know get some good news and i, I walked into court I waited for the judge to come in the judge came in and we had presented the judge with a, a stack of uh character letters that you know my family and I had uh got friends and family and and you know teachers and uh ministers and people that have known me throughout my life and known my family throughout my life to you know we put these letters together and we got them put together for the judge the judge said okay I'm I'm going to go take these letters and read over them to consider them. And, and when I come back, uh, we'll go from there. I mean, we probably gave him maybe 40 letters. He left in the back for probably three to five minutes. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, he came back He said, okay, I read them. And he asked the, the girl who had made this accusation up, He asked her mom if she wanted to stand up and speak. And her mom got up and, uh, Uh, She went on to uh, basically degrade me in every way that she could um, to tell me that I was every monster uh, in the book, uh, that I deserved more time, um, that I took her daughter's innocence, um, that I didn't give her daughter a chance to have a choice. Um, She said a lot of things that you know, no innocent man should have to hear in their lifetime uh, or ever have to process. Um, But when she was done speaking, she sat down, the judge uh, immediately said, "Okay, you know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to sentence you to six years. The max. (laughs) He gave me the max term of six years. And it didn't without explanation. There was really no reason behind it. It was you know the favorable report they both recommended the probation uh i had never been arrested never been locked up i had no priors i i never had you know any instance with the law uh you know I and here are you know there was there was no evidence there was no and not only that jim the there was no DNA evidence, and this was a huge part of my case. Brian,
0: excuse me, I was going to ask you that. That was my next question. Was yeah. there any DNA evidence to support her accusations?
1: Yeah, there, there was no DNA, and that's that's one of the huge components to my story. Um, that is, you know, there was a lot of balls dropped, but this one in particular was the hugest one, and you know, and when you're dealing with a case of this nature of sexual assault. Uh, where the victim um, claims that there uh, that something took place where DNA should be present. and you do a DNA test um, and there is no DNA found. Um, then that says a lot about the credibility of one story. It says not only that, it refutes the credibility of one story. When someone says, not only will there be DNA, but I saw the DNA, I touched the DNA and the DNA is inside of me. When someone speaks directly in that nature and you test the DNA that you test for DNA within hours that this all took place. And if you know a little bit about how DNA works and how much DNA is on the tip of a pencil for there not to be any DNA findings of me, um, says a lot my lawyer never used the dna in court my lawyer never presented the dna as evidence to this day she never used it as a defense in my case why i do not know i still to this day cannot answer why in a sexual assault in a rape case would you not use the dna as means for dismissal this
0: Uh, it's the most important thing right
1: it's the, it's the number one thing. It, it, it's, it's, it goes beyond words. It goes beyond say, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's science, you know, and it, 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 it tells you what happened at this time, especially when someone's telling you that something else happened and for my lawyer not to use that, but instead um, continuously push the idea of taking a deal, um, you know,
0: I mean, I mean, Brian. To your point, it's 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 words, right? Then it's your word against her word. There's no DNA evidence to support the accusation. There aren't witnesses, and your lawyer is telling you, "Just do this. Just do this. You'll get probation." What on earth went through your mind when you heard that judge say, "Not probation. Not three years. Six years. Six years."
1: Yeah, <laughs> that was. Uh... Whew, man, that was crazy because, you know, it's uh, you you when you're going through this, this whole back and forth to court, there's a whole psychological play at at, at, at hand. Your psyche is being tested in a way that you have never been tested before. You're showing up into a room where they're going to determine whether or not you're going to go home or not for years. And, you know, what's on the other side of that door if you don't go home, you know what that life's going to be like. You know what that experience is going to be like. So every time you go into the courtroom, when I say your heart will shake out of your body, your soul will shake out of your skin, you will sweat, your leg will tap, your heart will race, your your breathing will will speed up, you know, your, your paranoia will be through the roof. I, I mean that to the highest degree. That is what you feel when you are sitting in a courtroom and, and there are strangers talking over you, ignoring you, treating, treating you as if you're not even in that room, and they're talking about you and what they should do with you. And you did nothing wrong. You never committed the crime, but you can't speak up. You can't open your mouth and say anything because that'd be a court violation. You just got to sit there and let people do their jobs and how many people really like their jobs? How many people really take their jobs seriously? How many people really put passion behind their work? How many people are just clocking in and clocking out so that they can make a few dollars to go on about their day and raise their families who really gives a damn, you know? So when you talk about what are you thinking when you're in court, what are you, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing? You are experiencing the height of fear.
0: Brian I feel the... I feel anxiety and fear just talking to you all these years later I can't even imagine what it must have been like that day so you go away you do that time ultimately how did this thing turn ultimately how were you exonerated and cleared of this
1: in the 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 most unimaginable way I I unfortunately had to 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 you know before my exoneration i had to complete my entire sentence i was sentenced to six years in prison i was to serve 85 percent of that time i did a total of five years and two months i spent my sixth my 17th 18th 19th 20th 21st uh and 22nd birthday behind bars i paroled at the age of 22. i had to endure five years of strict custody parole which means I had to live as a sex offender for five years. I couldn't live within 2000 feet of any school or park. I had to register within any community that I lived in. I could not go to any school or park. I had a curfew. I had to turn off the lights in my house, lock my door and basically hide during the holidays where people would potentially come and knock on your doors like Halloween. Um, I was on those websites when you wanted to know if your neighborhood and community was safe and who are the sex offenders within a few blocks radius. I was the guy that popped up. So I endured that for an additional five years after I got out of prison, I wore a GPS tracking device for that entire time. It never came off. And during that five years of strict custody parole, um, I was looking for a job online, and I—it was impossible to find work. That's another story, but I was still trying, and I got tired. My eyes were just tired of searching and searching and applying and applying. And so I got off the search and I jumped on Facebook. Um, this was during a time where Facebook and MySpace was still the thing, and I remember getting on Facebook, and I saw I had. a A friend request and I clicked on a box and the box drops down and it was the person who had falsely accused me of rape now uh requesting to be my my friend on Facebook.
0: Brian Brian respectfully respectfully the fuck man the fuck like like, like what she tried to friend you on Facebook yeah. Yeah. What and, what did you do with that? What did you think and then what did you do with that?
1: Yeah, I uh <laughs> I remember I was sitting on the edge of a bed uh where I was living at the time and I slammed the laptop down and threw it across the room and I I where the bed was positioned it was like right near this window and I just faded out. When I tell you I had the craziest out of body experience. It it just really made no sense. I sat there and I just drifted off. And I mean, it was like my life, my past flashed before my eyes, my experiences, what I went through, my current condition, the stuff that I lost, the person who was now reaching out. It was just like, yes, the fuck. Like That's exactly what was going on. And I sat there and then eventually I snapped back And I, my first words was like, there's no way, there's no way that this is, this is really this person. And I grabbed a laptop. Luckily it still works because I had through it. I opened it back up and I remember sending a message and I, you know, I gave it thought and I said, you know what? I need to figure this out because here's the deal. If it's not this person, if it really is somebody creating something fake, then that's just as weird and scary and odd as well too that someone would create a fake page to be not her to you know to play whatever game is being played right
0: had you not been through enough had you not been through enough
1: (laughs) it just couldn't get any crazier man i sent a message to this account and i it was quick why would you friend request me and within minutes a response came back and the response was something along the lines of um I was very immature back in the day. Um, but I can assure you I'm much more mature now. I, I love to hang out with you sometime. You know, what's up?
0: Dude, that that is, that is I, some of the most insane shit I've ever heard in my life, honestly. So you did what I couldn't believe it. I still what?
1: couldn't so believe, you, it. Yeah, still couldn't I, believe I, that it was her. Yeah. I, I like this now. I'm like, this really is uh, some sick joke. Like this can't be real and i'm gonna get down to the bottom of who this who this really is now so i sent another message would you call me and i put a phone number in there and within a few seconds my phone started ringing and i answered the phone and it was and it (laughs) it was her it really it really was her and uh i remember just being in silence for uh several seconds maybe longer than that just sitting there and listening to breathing and listening to what was going on on the other end of the phone and listening to people in the background and um thinking about what the fuck I was going to say and um finally I opened my mouth and I'm like yeah I, you know, what's going on? Like why you know, why would you frame request me? I just really don't understand what's going on right now. And um, you know, she just responded like it was no big deal. It was like, oh, well, you know, I just got on Facebook. I saw your pictures, I was looking you up, and you know, you're looking you're looking good. You know, like it's good to see you, like you are really grown up. Like I, you know, you're cute. And I I don't know. Have you seen my pictures? Did you look up at my account If you saw my friend request? How do you think I look? You know, I'd love to hang out with you sometime, you know, it'd be good to catch up. You know, you want to hang out You know, I can meet you anywhere. Um, you know, just let me know. It'd be good to see you. And. Uh, I just saw. Uh, going back to what I said earlier, I really had to play chess and not checkers because part of me just wanted to, you know, let her ass have it right then and there. And just tell her how I really felt and what I've been through, and just go crazy and freak out, and and you know, then there was the other side of me was like, then that will be it, you know. If you do that, then that will be it. Like there, there won't be any later. There won't. You've been. I've been trying to fight my case the entire time that I was locked up. I had appealed my case when I was in prison on my own i wrote a writ of habeas uh, writ, writ of habeas corpus on my own i went back to the law library inside the prisons i studied law i studied the law surrounding my case i put together an entire petition and sent it to court based on new discover on, on new discovery on newfound evidence of, of unused evidence to dna and it was granted uh, a sh- order to show cause so i was sent back to court i had an opportunity to fight my case again i got some fake ass Public pretend. Oh, excuse my language. I got some fake ass. No, public defense. no,
0: no, Say you say it any way you want. <laughs> because him in
1: particular, that's what he was. He was some guy who had been hired by somebody else. I don't know whatever happened. But when I was the day that I was supposed to appear in court for my order to show cause, this guy showed up to me and he said, "You know that if you go in there and you get granted this order to show cause and it goes in your favor, that your entire case is going to start over from scratch." You're going to start over from the beginning and they're going to retry you and you're going to be facing life all over again. You're not going to go home. And I said, what? He said, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And I was literally, by the time that I got this order to show cause, I was months away from going home. I had almost finished my entire prison sentence. And here it was, the guy who was supposed to be representing me because I had no money was looking me in my face and telling me that if you go through with this and they approve it, you ain't going home on your parole date in a few months. You're going to stay in here. They're going to bring your bail back. You're going to you're gonna stay in prison. You're going to start over from scratch. They're going to come after you hard. So I threw my appeal out. After all of that hard work of studying the law for who knows how long it took me, I threw the appeal out. I came home and I thought it was better to finish the rest of my time in parole. I apologized to the judge for wasting the court's time and I got on a, on a bus and I went back. So fast forward to, you know, here I am now and I'm on this phone listening to this person tell me about wanting to hang out and playing chess and not checkers. Here was an opportunity for me to finally bring some real evidence to shed light on what actually fucking happened in this story in my situation. So I had to play chess and not checkers. I couldn't blow up. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. I had to play it off. So I said to her, you know, okay, you know, maybe we could hang out. Maybe we could hang out and talk, but before any of this, you gotta help me get my life back because I lost everything and gained a lot of shit that I don't need. And she said, well, if we can hang out, you know, maybe I'll think about helping you. So now, I'm my freedom is being dangled in the air by the person who took it. And I'm playing chess, not checkers. Jim. I can't go off. So I'm like, all right, well, you know what? Uh, Let me give me some time. Let me think about how we can make this happen. All right, well, don't wait too long. I really want to see you. Hmm. And over the next few weeks that I'm trying to figure out what to do, she is blowing me up by text message, begging to see me. To a point to where now it felt like she wasn't just trying to see me on good terms. It felt like she was trying to set me up, like, like have some dudes there to get me or like it it was over
0: the top. it It didn't feel right at all.
1: At all. At all. And sure enough, she just wanted to see me. Um, so it got to a point to where she said after a few weeks of me dodging her, dodging her, dodging her, she said, well, if you don't want to see me, then maybe I'll change my mind about helping you. Mm. So I had to move quick. I reached out to a friend of mine whose dad had just become a public, uh, a private investigator. And I said, I'm going to meet this person. You know, the story I'm risking my freedom because coming back into contact with this person while on parole is an automatic violation of my parole can be sent back to prison. But for the sake of my freedom and telling the truth, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to meet this person and I need you to help me record what happens. And so we met, we set this all up at his private investigation office. And I reached out to her and I said, if you want to meet, you can meet me at my job during my lunch break and we can talk. And she agreed. So I'll be there. that night man i did not i didn't sleep i didn't lay in the bed i didn't rest i couldn't i couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that i was going to be seeing her that following day and trying to play it off like everything was all good hmm. um but i had to and uh that day she actually showed up And uh, whoo, man, it was crazy. Um, I just was trying my best to explain to her everything that I had gone through, what I had experienced and how it affected me and my family's life. And she was just so focused on all the things that she had to go through, like people were hating on her for all the money that she received from the lawsuit that she that she put against the school district for lack of security they were awarded she was awarded 1.5 million dollars in a settlement with the school district on this case for lack of security so she was mad that everybody was hating on her that she was balling out and they couldn't ball off of her money she was mad that they that the 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 courts had recommended that she go to therapy and see a psychologist for the the things that she supposedly went through and she was mad that she was being bothered for the so all the things that were you know
0: that like, like, like Brian, like, never mind you, Brian Banks. What about me? Do you know what I went through? Do you know how hard it's been for me? I mean, for you to listen to that again, you're playing chess, not checkers. It's probably taking every bit of emotional control you have not to lash Mm -hmm. out, but you had a plan and you knew you only had probably one shot to get it. What Mm -hmm. transpired in that office, in that meeting after she was done complaining about how hard it all was for her?
1: Well, i had asked her if she would really put her her you know which if she would actually help me get my life back and she said well i don't want to talk to any police officers or i don't want to talk to any lawyers um but you know if i can help i'll help and i said well what about if uh i have a private investigator show up and talk to us and advise us on what's the best way to move forward and she said okay i agree to that and so the private eye which was the guy that I had already spoke to which we were already in his office I set it up to where he was going to show up tomorrow to advise us she showed up the following day again and this time he was present with us uh and he began to ask her all the questions uh did he do this did Brian rape you did this happen did this happen or that happened and she denied everything that no it never happened If, if it really happened I wouldn't be here right now and we were just young and, and being curious and one thing led to another. And, you know, um, you know, I, you know, I started off a lie. And then every time Brian, I would hear about what Brian was saying actually happened, it made me look like a liar. So I began to lie more and add more to it. So did it make sense while I was that when I was incarcerated, initially, I was locked up for one charge of rape. And then One day it was two charges, and then another day it was three counts, and then another day sodomy came up, and then another day kidnapping showed up. And I was trying to understand when I was incarcerated, how is it that all of these charges just keep popping up? And then it came to fruition, or it came to light, that it was her continuing the lies, because I was telling the truth, and it made her look more and more like a liar. So she added more and more and more to the story. But essentially she came forward um, and we got it on tape. The whole room was surveillance. And we took that tape um, to the California Innocence Project, Um, uh, which at the time was ran by the founder, Justin Brooks. Uh, And they took on my case. And when they took on my case, that was the first time in this whole nine year, at the time, this 10 year ordeal, it was nine years at this time, it was the first time that i felt that something real was going to happen in my favor i had <clears throat> i was well aware of who the california innocence project was who justin brooks was um his his notoriety his achievements his success in helping innocent people regain and reclaim their freedom and so when they took on my case coupled with the video of her recanting uh which is on youtube easily can be found um I knew I had a chance. Uh, So I took that opportunity when they took on my case, I vowed to myself right then and there. I said, if I get my life back, when I get my life back, let's claim it. The first thing I'm gonna do is, I'm going back for things that were taken away from me. And the number one thing that was taken away from me was opportunity. And within that opportunity was football. So if I get my life back I'm reclaiming my opportunity, and I'm going to play football. And so the California Innocence Project started fighting my case. It took them an entire year, which in, the, which in the world of wrongful convictions, in the world of fighting to overturn a conviction, is very short. One year is nothing. There's cases that have been fought for 10 years just trying to overturn a conviction of an innocent person. But I took that year to start training. I got back into the gym. I hadn't been working out. I haven't done anything, but I, I hit the ground running. I started working with trainers. I started getting my body back in tune. I started working out two and three times a day, trying to catch up to all the time that was missed uh, and and to, to, to try to be on the same page with all of these young guys who have not lost a beat in their training since Pop Warner. You know, so it was a mission. I was working out with Jay Glazer. I was working out with Travelle Gaines. I was working out with Gallant, Gavin Mc- McMillan over at Sports Science Lab. You know, I, my, uh, I, I, uh, I was, I was blessed to, uh, have Bruce Toner take over as my, my sports agent over at rep one sports. So I was building this family around me of people who believed in me and wanted to see this happen. Um, and sure enough, man, I, I, uh, May twenty fourth, two thousand twelve, after a lot of back and forth and paperwork and meetings and a very uh, fortunate and and rare meeting between me and a DA's office, which resulted in a joint investigation into my case from um, by the DA's uh, office and our uh, legal team, um, they came to understand and learn. Um, that I was actually innocent. So May 24th, 2012, I walked into a courtroom as a convicted sex offender, and I walked out a free and innocent man. And I wanna make one stipulation, um, or I wanna make one point. Um, And that point is, is I was found factually innocent. And what that means is, they could have just found me innocent. And innocent just means we didn't have enough to convict your ass and come after you. So we got to let you go. But to be found factually innocent, that means that we fucked up. That you are innocent, innocent. And we made the mistake. So to hear that finally, after 10 years of my life, 10 years of hardship, of pain, of opportunity loss, you know, and let me take it one step further, Jim, I was accused of of kidnapping someone. I was accused of taking advantage of someone. I was accused of robbing someone of their childhood. But when you really look at it, I experienced all those things. Hmm. I was wrongfully accused. I was taken and kidnapped. I was taken off the streets from my family. I was I was harmed mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I went through it all. So, it was it was hard to put in words how it felt to be exonerated. That moment sitting at that table in the courtroom listening to the judge, the same judge who convicted me.
0: Wow. So, Brian, you you went through it all. My question is, how did you get through it all how were you able Hmm. to let it go how were you able to process and reconcile all of this 10 years of your life wrongly accused wrongly imprisoned four years your accuser not only lied and made up all these things but profited from it with a million and a half dollar payout all these horrific traumatic things how did you get through it and let it go hmm
1: there is I I say this time and time again, there is no method to the madness. There is only how you see yourself and how you see the events around you shaping and how you allow those experiences to affect you. This is not something that I knew going into this experience. This is something that I learned along the way with the help of some amazing people, my mentor. Mr. Johnson, who's played by Morgan Freeman in the movie that was made about my life called Brian Banks. Mr. Johnson was a, a teacher at the juvenile hall program that I was initially put in. And for all I know, he could have been teaching social studies, but when you go into his classroom, the only thing he talked about was this journey to enlightenment. This thinking outside of the box, this discovery of one's true self. And it was a way of thinking and a way of teaching that I had never heard before. And it was presented to me at the right time in my life, when I was at the worst, when I was going through the worst. And I, even though that information was presented to me, that way of thought was presented to me it still took me to grab onto it and to use that as a beacon of hope and to use it as a compass and a guide to navigate me through the things that I was going through. I was open to accepting those things and that allowed me to begin a whole journey of self discovery and discovery of the world around me. And that that was from reading and psychology and sociology and spiritual enlightenment texts um, to getting into to to how I spoke. I read the dictionary and the thesaurus and I would write words and dictionary words and their meanings down and fill up notebooks, just not only to utilize the time, but to utilize the time correctly. And then I would go out to the prison yard and use these big words on people. But even taking it a step further, what I was essentially trying to do is not associate my emotions with the experience. We go through life. And we oftentimes allow our emotions to be dictated by our experience. When in fact, no experience comes with emotion. We apply, we apply the emotion to the experience. When something happens in our life, we tell ourselves how we're going to feel about that. I didn't like that. That pissed me off. I'm mad. That's, that's a choice versus I didn't like that. That pissed me off. But now i learn learned from this and moving forward, I'm going to utilize this as a learning tool and how I'm going to respond and deal with it in the next time it presents itself to me. It's all the way how we think about things, how we allow stuff to affect us, being in control of our emotions and not allowing our emotions to control us. But not only that, wanting more for me, I wanted so much more for me. I think that football gave me such not only just football but when i played basketball when i was in karate at a young at a young age or any of the sports that i took part in when i ran track that competitive edge that that it gives you if you really enjoy sports and you really get into it it de- you develop this competitive edge and that competitive edge teaches you one thing and one thing that we all learn don't quit don't quit you cannot quit because no one's going to work harder for you than you. So if you if you give up right now, then that's it. And you can't expect nobody out there to work harder for you. Then you're going to work for yourself. And so I had to remember these things in the worst and hardest moments and times of my life. But that is during the, that is the time when we should be remembered and reminded of those things, not on vacation.
0: There's no adversity on vacation. I mean, what you're talking about, Brian, I've heard you talk about this before, and I'm glad you brought this up. What we're talking about essentially is, quote, the power of choice, the power Hmm. of choice. So, I mean, even to this day, and, and now to this day, you mentor others, you coach others, you do a lot of work with others. Let me ask you this. Do you, for somebody listening, like even to this day, do you ever say, why me or what if? Or have you got that out of your system and vocabulary completely? And then secondarily, if somebody is listening right now, they never went through what you went through. I can guarantee that. But I can also guarantee there are people, Brian, saying, why me? What if? What should they do in those moments? What should they do with that attitude?
1: Hmm. Yes, it, and it's it's very human to have those thoughts, to think, why me? Because we are the star of our own movie, we don't look at the, we don't look at life from a collective viewpoint. We look at it from a single character ourselves. So when we go through experiences, oftentimes when we go through bad experiences, we tend to say, "Why me?" But we never say that when we go through the good experiences. And we don't go through good things. Ah, why did I get this new job? Or why, why did I get right. this new? You know, this million dollars or why did I win the lottery? We don't question it, you know. Um, So I think that we have to try and apply the same thought process to the bad experiences that we do to the good. The the way I, I, I'll I'll give you a quick example. You know, I I often tell people life is, if you were to hold two hands together, I know we're, I'm going to try to make it visual here. If we were to hold our hands together as if we were holding a box, we would say life is this big but what we want to obtain in life is as small as a very tiny box, you know? So how do we obtain this small, tiny box while having to deal with everything that surrounds it in this bigger box, the noise, the chatter, the haters, the the, the things that we don't want to experience, the unwanted experiences, the the stuff that we have to go through that we really don't want to go through, but we got to go through it to get through the next part. How do we navigate through all of this noise and unwanted experience while trying to get to where we want to get through? And this should be a constant thought process that we should carry with ourselves all the time. How do I navigate through the noise? I had to constantly ask myself when I was going through the worst moments of my life, B, how are you navigating through the noise? What are you doing to navigate through the noise? Are you sitting here allowing it to consume you Or are you taking the opportunity to use the experience as a learning experience, as a growing experience, as a spiritual growth experience, as a time to meditate, as a time to reflect and think, as a time to prepare? There's so many things that we could be doing to better our situation in situations when we can. A lot of what we go through takes place in our mind. If we learn how to control our emotions, our mindsets, then we control a majority of what we experience in life.
0: Hmm.
1: Most of it is in our minds.
0: Almost everything is between our ears. Brian, before you go, we talked about your movie. Your book is entitled, What Set Me Free? Exactly what did set you free?
1: Hmm. Uh... (laughs) That is a great question. Uh, you know, I would say what set me free is the difference between faith and knowing. I think faith is beautiful. I believe in faith. We apply faith to situations and experiences that we don't, and experiences that we don't know the answers to. I have faith that things will be okay. I have faith that I will get through this. I have faith that everything will turn out the way it's supposed to. That means that you know, I'm going to believe in the higher a higher power, I'm gonna believe in something bigger than me, and that whatever it is that I believe in, it'll all turn out okay, so long as I believe. I, I, I also feel that there is a difference between faith and knowing. The moment we replace knowing, or the moment we replace faith with knowing is the moment that we begin to reclaim a lot of our courage and our confidence and our assuredness in what it is that we are going through, but what it is that we know we're going to get through. So in a lot of times where I would apply faith, I started to apply knowing I know I'm going to get through this. I know that my purpose is bigger than this. I know that this is for a reason And I know that I'm going to be okay. I know that I can do this. It has to become a no.
0: So, so How do we get to that? How do we get to knowing if we don't have that kind of confidence or we don't Mm -hmm. have that kind of process? How do you get to knowing? How did you know?
1: You know what? Here's the best way to do it. When you were young, one day it hit you that you wanted to become an NBA player. One day it hit you that you wanted to become an NFL athlete that you were going to be a superstar or win a Super Bowl or a championship ring. And when that first that idea first hit you and you knew it to be true and you held on to it to you in your heart, what did you do? You started practicing. You started sacrificing. You started eating better. You started training harder. The people you hung around with changed because you started to hang around people who had the same ideals and principles as you. You woke up early. You went to bed late. You started to do every single thing that you could do to put yourself in the best position to be the best athlete that you could imagine if you put that same intensity that same hard work into your overall well-being your overall eudaimonia your overall thought process and your your emotions and how they how they 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 relate to your life imagine if you put that same intensity into your learning your studying your meditation your spirituality you'd be unmoved the building blocks of life is what's most important before everything else, it's self. Self-love. Not all Self-love we work on self. Right? Self-love. Eudaimonia. It's a Latin word for a wellness, life wellness.
0: Brian, so I mean, obviously, there's I can't say how much I appreciate this, how much I admire you, how much I respect you. And if there are people listening right now that are moved, or if they want to see your movie, or if they want to get your book, or if they want to learn more about what you're doing, or even work with you directly, where should they go? What should they do? Let me give
1: you two sites, Please. If you want to work with me directly, uh, whether it be through uh, life coaching or wellness coaching, or if you need advice or or counseling uh, for legal experiences, you can reach out to me on my website, which is brianbanksfree.com. If you are inspired by my journey uh, and you've seen the the climb from losing it all to being where I am today, from a TV show, to a movie, to a book, uh, to being a nationally recognized motivational speaker, a life coach, um, a lot of that has been accomplished through very um, strategic um, messaging and how we present stories and my story to the world and how i've been able to navigate in working with the best people to tell my story the best way uh, and that comes through awesome public relations i am blessed to be in a position where i am going to be uh, launching a pr firm within the next few weeks um, with some amazing people so if you want to know more about that if you if you like to see how i can be involved in your journey uh, through a PR standpoint, please reach out to me at uh, BKBPR.com. BKBPR.com. Brian Banks, Public Relations.
0: Well, I can't wait to see how that plays out. And I'm not at all surprised by that. But I mean, I don't, I, frankly, for somebody who's spent the last three decades expressing themselves, I almost want to say to you, no words. But I'm so glad that you spent as much time with us as you did today. And again, I want to reiterate nothing but love, respect, admiration, and gratitude. Gratitude for you taking that much time to share your story because there's no telling how many people were moved and inspired by that. And most of all, my guy, just so great to get caught up with you, Brian. I really appreciate that so much.
1: And likewise, let me just finish on this note by thanking you. You were one of the first ones from the very beginning. You didn't know me from a grain of salt. You heard my story. You were compelled to reach out to me and give me an opportunity to share it on your platform. And I am forever thankful for that. I cannot tell you how big that was for me, um, how much reach my story was able to, to, to extend. And that was because of being able to be a part of your platform and you taking the opportunity to take a chance on me, so I, I just want to say thank you, I much respect to you, congratulations, and being an OG in this community, all that you do, bringing us the good news, the good word, keeping us on the beat, you the man, Jim. Thank you, bro.
0: And you think that nobody understands your plight? or how badly you have it, or how tough it is for you right now. I'm not saying that you're not dealing with really challenging issues currently. I'm sure you are. We all are, always. But have you ever been sent to prison for nearly six years for a crime that you did not commit, and then placed on parole for an additional five years, and had your dreams and soul ripped from you for something you didn't do? Have you ever not only lost a huge chunk of your life, but suffered greatly throughout that same period for something in your life that you were falsely accused of? I know that's not the case for me. That has never happened to me. And I'm guessing for most of you, that never has either. At least I hope not. But for Brian Banks, he lived that life. And yet somehow he didn't just get over it or even just get beyond it, somehow he's better for it. Because he never stopped believing in himself. Because he never gave in. He never gave up. He never lost hope. And he realized, in his own words, that nobody will ever work harder for you than you. That's the most important relationship you are ever going to have in this world. The one you have with yourself. His accuser ultimately recanted her statements, admitted she fabricated the entire story, and yet somehow Brian is not consumed with rage. Somehow he has been able to let it all go. And he's done so through what he calls the power of choice. He has chosen to convert all that trauma into positive, clean, burning fuel, and now he helps so many others who are struggling to do the same thing. As mentioned, he has written a book, his life story was turned into a movie, and now he coaches and mentors countless individuals. And as traumatic as that story is, Brian Banks has proven, with the right resiliency and grit and mindset, there is virtually nothing that you can't overcome. And I can't thank him enough for sharing that story, and I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. If you appreciate what you just heard, please feel free to share it. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast. Every little bit helps as I'm in the process of expanding it and reinventing The Reinvention Project. So if you could hit subscribe, that would be awesome. If you could leave a review, that'd be great too. As always, I appreciate you all so much. And I will see you all next time right here on The Reinvention Project with Jim Rome. See you then.